Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we are continuing our conversation with Scott about his book, A Church Called Tove. And we are talking about spiritual abuse in the church. And just to remind you all, um, we had invited people to send us their questions about spiritual abuse. And this is the third in a series of three about these questions. So we're trying to answer the questions that we received. So Scott, I thought we'd start out. This is a big question and it covers a lot of ground, but it's it's sort of a variation on a theme. And that is this question. Um, how is this issue of spiritual abuse, um, what is the role of complementarian theology and how does it feed in or does it? Is there a connection um, between spiritual abuse and complementarian theology? Well, this is a big question and um, it would be easy for someone like me who considers himself a mutualist, not an egalitarian, but that's that's a nuance. Uh, to start talking about complementarianism in in general and all of its weaknesses and why I think it's a problem. But uh, I I really think that this is an important question because abuse of spiritual abuse, when we're talking uh, not physical abuse, but the use of spiritual authority, leadership, position, office, power, to coerce someone in some way against their will or in a way that um, they only over time realized was was offensive to their, say, their personality and even their will. So we're talking about spiritual abuse. So we're talking about power. So we do need to talk about complementarianism. Complementarianism spite of the attempts by many people to nuance it right off the page into something it's not, is about hierarchy and patriarchy. Russell Moore has said this several times, that it is about patriarchy and there is a, hier- there is a hierarchy involved in complementarianism. And no matter how many times they try to nuance it off the page with nice ideas, um, it is about that. Now, the minute you start talking hierarchy, you start talking authority and power. And one of the most common terms used in complementarian discussions of the relationship between a husband and a wife and between men, leaders, pastors in a church and everybody else is the word authority. So we're talking authority, we're talking power. All right, so let's let's just not even have that as a debate. Right? And I am not going to say in any way, shape, or form that every complementarian uh, does all these things. It's just not true. I know too many kind and generous and gentle complementarians, and I've even said to them, well, you claim to be complementarian, but you're actually egalitarian. And uh, they don't always <laughs> like it, but some of them laugh. But here's the thing I would say. I have said this for many years that power-mongering people, authority-seeking males are looking for structures in which they can wield power and authority. This is not a debate. There is a correlation between people who want power and positions that have power. 
And authoritative males gravitate toward authoritative positions so they can exercise their authoritative ways. Now, having said that, that's a general picture. I believe it is the case that complementarianism attracts abusive males more than egalitarianism. There is a correlation studied by a person like Stephen Sandage. Um, I knew a woman who was making research on this, but I don't know that she ever published it. And uh, she passed away, uh, but I used to read her blog posts about this stuff. Her name was Susan McCarthy. I think that was her name. Um, I believe there is a correlation. There is a correlation between abusive, authoritarian, powerful males and complementarian theology because it permits authoritarian males to do what authoritarian males want to do. I do not believe theoretically that a complementarian male is abusive. And when I hear people say that, um, I raise my eyebrows and I say, I don't think that's accurate to say. Um, and I, you know, I worked at Trinity with complementarian males and I did not think they were authoritarians at all. Um, but there was a correlation and there is a correlation. So abuse shows up far more often in authoritarian structures than it can possibly show up in mutualist or egalitarian structures. So when I'm asked the question, does spiritual abuse occur more often in complementarian church structures? I would say yes. I would say there is a correlation between authoritarian church structures that are complementarian, that focus on a pastor having authority, and the same people who were arguing for complementarianism in the 90s and 80s and 90s and 2000s are the same people who also gave rise to much discussion about pastoral authority. Authority is big for these people. You don't have to wield authority in mean ways, but Mean people find authoritarian structures so they could be meaner. <laughs> All right. So th this is this is just a reality. And yeah. um, um, I've, I've worked with people who are complementarians and they're very kind people. I've worked with some egalitarians that shouldn't be. They should be complementarians as mean as they are. And that's unfair <laughs> even to say to complementarians. Because I only believe it's a correlation. I don't believe it's causation. I don't think complementarian makes people mean or abusive. But abusive people love abusive structural possibilities. Right. I think these things get connected a lot. And I think um, they get confused with one another. So I think um, there are occasions where... Um, someone is abusing their power or their authority in general, and it becomes um, like a power struggle. It gets labeled as a power struggle between men and women, when really the problem is that the leader just has a problem with power in general. That's um, right. But because we recognize the gender issue, that's where we go with the label. And it's really just disguising a broader problem. 
Um, you know, Laura, I've seen this so many times. I've talked to so many, you know, because of my interests, um, and I consider this a gift from God, because of my interest in, in advocating for women in ministry, I've talked to so many women over the years who talk about pastors who are authoritarian. And they, I think it's it's about 97%, you know, so I'm, I'm not gonna say it's every person, they're they're complementarians, but the the virtue that comes through, or the lack of virtue, is that they are power mongering people. They're they're a bit insecure. They they lean toward narcissism. They want to be in charge. And these women who have excellent gifts of speaking, teaching, who have time to study, who know more than the men in the church who love theology more and who meet with other women in Bible studies. And over 10 years, they've grown immensely in study. They have questions that pastors can't answer. And the easiest way to deal with them is to silence them. That is a sign of bad church structure and authority. Yeah. I'm sure you've experienced this, Laura. I, I I would say that that is a fairly accurate description of some things that I've experienced. And it's frustrating um, because then the question is, do you hide what you know so as to not appear threatening? Um, do you hide your spiritual gifts and not use them because it creates a, you know, a power imbalance? Um, or do you attempt to use the gifts that God has given you and run into these power structures that don't want to, or see that as a direct challenge. When yeah. you're not trying to challenge, you're just trying to use your gifts. And you know, yeah. um, let's face it, when you are in a power structure and you are the least powerful and you're a woman, even if you assert yourself, you become a negative stereotype of a woman. Rather, if a male did the same thing, it would be an argument. If a woman does right. it, it's uh, asserting control, you know? Right. So You just run and, headlong into a narrative. Uh, um, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm just wanting um, those who are experienced in structures to be more alert to it and to learn how to deal with it and learn if they even want to deal with it. I've yeah. met so many women who have tried for years and years. And... You know, I'm not saying that I said this years and years ago to him, but I thought if you'd have decided early to go to a different church, it would have been a different life. And right. so, and I I applaud the hope of transformation, but my experience is that this is a very difficult change to make. Um, I've not long ago I was in conversation with some elders at a church, and they're going through this discussion. But uh, in the end, um, it's not going to go anywhere because it requires a change of culture. And I, right. that's why I believe allowing women to teach Sunday school one step at a time over, five, let's say, five years can change the entire church culture so that when you move, let's say, to a vote, you've already, you've already convinced the congregation. Uh, giving women platform, giving women platform giving women platform is going to create a different situation. 
If you right. just bring it up and say, let's vote on it and have a theological debate, they're going to they're gonna raise their hand. I read Wayne Grudem say this. I read John Piper say this. And they haven't experienced the reality of the giftedness of women that God, through the Spirit, has given such women. I know a, a huge change for me on this issue was meeting Marta Hooker in England. And I, when I, yeah. I was sitting, I was standing next to her. I was riding a bicycle next to her, and we were at a stop sign. And I just kind of looked at her, and I thought, you changed my life. <laughs> this whole idea that women aren't supposed to do that is just not true for me. So I began to rethink the entire question. Because of her powerful teaching of Scripture and theological insight, I thought, no, it's not going to work for me. So I began <laughs> to change my mind. And I think what's interesting or, or what I wonder is if there are women with these gifts that are encountering roadblocks in their attempts to use those gifts who at some point say, this is too hard to try to shift this culture or to try to change this dynamic in this location. And so they remove themselves. They find other churches that are welcoming of their gifts. Um, so you know, our, so then these other churches are left without these women and their gifts. They, yeah, it continues yeah. the process. They're never going to see women on the platform with these gifts because those women have left. There's so much of this. In fact, Laura, there's, um, uh, there's, there's a very clear movement that women who are excluded from ministries and churches have gone outside the church into parachurch ministries. And just look at the blogs, the influence of podcasts, the influence in books. And then you realize, okay, now look, the most influential Bible teacher in America is Beth Moore. Mm -hmm. She's not a pastor. Mm -hmm. She's not a teacher at a seminary or Christian college. She taught outside the church in small group studies. She's so gifted at it that more and more people, and now, I mean, I don't know her sales. I don't know anything about that stuff. But I do know she is by far the most influential Bible teacher in the United States, but it had to be outside the church. Right. And, right. Um, okay, the, the church is the <laughs> one losing on this. And women, young women are losing in the church. And so many of them are longing for opportunities to write books and get blogs and get on podcasts because they see that's the opportunity for their gifts to be exercised. They look at the church yeah. and they go, they'll never give me a chance. Right. And the sad thing is a lot of these women, I think of Beth Moore and, and how she writes, she loves the church. She, she cares does. deeply about the trajectory of the church. And I think that's true of a lot of these women. And it's, it's painful to be excluded from those settings that you care so deeply about um, and, and to be told that your voice is not wanted there and that your gifts are not wanted there. Um, it's, it's deeply difficult. And I, I think it raises other questions of oversight and, and other kinds of things. But um, you know, to me, another thing I don't want to interrupt, but um, I just had a good idea and I'm old enough to forget it if I don't say it. Is that um, and now I'm having a hard time remembering it? Um, is that is that the gifts of women, if not exercised, will hurt the church? 
And the church, mm. the, these women have gifts. They, they can do things for the church. And, and we, we need to, uh, we're the ones who are, who are hurting for it. Yeah. yeah. Well, another question we have here is about the Billy Graham rule. Um, and this idea, they say, I see the Billy Graham rule used to minimize women in the church and that this particular rule is treated like it's more authoritative than scripture. So if you want to define for us, what is the Billy Graham rule and how is it used to minimize women? Um, and why why do we treat this rule with such authority? And and what is there a better way of handling um, this issue? The Billy Graham rule, um, so far as I understand it, um, I don't know that I've ever quoted or seen it, but it, it's something like this, that that Billy Graham made a decision he would never be alone in a car or in a hotel or in a restaurant uh, with a woman without someone else being present. Um, Billy Graham did this to protect his reputation because he was so big that he didn't want stories being told that here's a picture of Billy Graham in a, in a hotel with a woman. Um, you know, so Billy Graham was protecting his reputation. Right. The okay, that's one point. The second point is this is that many women see this, I think, in ways that men that many men don't see. Many women think that this is treating women as seductresses. Mm -hmm. uh, when I've heard men talk about this and defend their use of it, if they're candid and speak with candor, they will say no. I don't see women as seductresses at all. I see myself as capable of being tempted. So mm -hmm. they, they actually see it in, in a way that women who say, I don't want to be treated like I'm a seductress. The men are saying, no, I, I treat it like I'm a person that might not be able to control myself. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I think that needs to be brought up. And, and if there are women who say, I don't think that's what's going on. I just want you to know, in my conversation with men, that comes up far more often than thinking that women are seductresses. I haven't heard a man say that about a woman in a long time. Okay. Now, the other side of it is this, and this is where to me it becomes a problem. I, okay. I, I would say it's wise for mm -hmm. men and women to conduct themselves in ways that protect honor and their own moral uh, integrity. Okay. So I think that there are times, I have had times when a woman wanted to meet with me privately and I said, no, simply, I'll tell you why. I didn't know the, the woman long enough. And I, I, I didn't know if I could trust the situation. Mm -hmm. Her. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. Uh, okay. I wasn't worried about myself in this situation. You know, I didn't, um, but here, here's the, here's the big issue. A great deal of ministry and advancement and networking occurs in conversation with other right. people. If men do not, men in power and authority and office, do not permit conversations with women the way they would with men that lead to networking opportunities then women are being systemically banned, excluded 
from opportunities. All right. Mm -hmm. Almost, I would say this, 75% of my opportunities to publish, maybe a hundred. When I was a young professor, were on the basis of people I knew in private conversations. I mean, that's where it, it happened. So if women are not getting those opportunities, then they're not going to be able to advance, let's say, as authors the way I author, or they don't get known. All right. Let's just say, Laura, that you have a Ph.D. in New Testament studies and you're looking for a New Testament job. All right. And then we ha I have another student named Cody Matchett, and he's a male student. And he has a PhD mm -hmm. in New Testament studies. But if I can't meet with you, or if I choose not to, but I meet with him, when some seminary says to me, do you have a New Testament candidate? Cody comes to mind because I've had conversations with him about it, but not with you. That's where women get hurt in these ministries. Right. So I think the Billy Graham rule um, needs to be exercised wisely but not as a rule that bans the networking of women with men with positions of authority and influence. Mm -hmm. right. Okay, I could probably say this. There are women who meet with women who I don't get recommended because I'm not in there. You know, all right, I think the numbers are low. Yeah. Uh, the other yeah. one is worse is the problem. Yep. And I think it's interesting. Um, I don't have any hard data to support this, but something that I have observed is a lot of times these pastors will meet in private counseling sessions with a woman for pastoral care, but they, these same pastors wouldn't drive in a car to, um, to an appointment with a fellow staff member who's a woman. So there's, there's something um, where they will meet alone with women um, for the purposes of ministry to that individual, but that same person, that same leader would not um, go on an appointment, maybe a lunch appointment or a coffee appointment with a fellow staff person um, because it could be seen to be improper, where that's the networking opportunity um, that the women need. But, you know, I think the pastoral care situation could potentially be just as problematic problematic, if not more so, because you're dealing with a vulnerable situation and someone. Yeah, that, one, that one would actually be more likely to create problems than the other one. Right. I do think that um, that the safeguards need to be done is that if, if you can, if you think it's wise to meet with someone else, do so. I just talked to a pastor this morning who said he felt so uncomfortable with this other person that he wanted someone else in the room. And it was another yeah. male. It was just, I wanted other people to hear what was being said here. I don't, I don't, yeah, all right. So I do think that there are, there are times that we need, we need to use as much wisdom as we can and protect right. ourselves with some kinds of policies like that. But I, I think and the big issue here is networking. And yeah. I, I think that men in power and authority and positions of influence need to network intentionally with women as well in ways that are, I mean, if I have power, I need to learn how to use that power. And, you know, um, sometimes you don't recognize the power that you have. So we need to recognize power differentials here and, and how they should be used.
Absolutely. And I think too, just the pastoral care issue. Um, I think there are a lot of churches where they don't have, because women with, with leadership gifts may not have been identified. They don't have a woman on staff who's been equipped to provide pastoral yeah, care, that's right. um, which would be the natural fit for that sort of situation that's right. and eliminate the problem. So it's all the more reason to keep these women around and well active said. in leadership within the church. All right. Well, so said, our well said, Pastor Laura. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, our final area of questions has to do with people who were writing in stories of their own personal experience. And some of these were really difficult to read, but they've realized that they're in an abusive culture and they're questioning what their next steps are. So sometimes, um, and they framed a lot of these questions in terms of responsibility. So they're a church leader who's realized that they're in a toxic leadership situation um, and they're leaving. And now they're asking, what about all the people that I'm leaving behind in this church culture, in this leadership culture? What is my responsibility, um, perhaps to other staff members um, or to the congregation as a whole? Like, do I have a responsibility to sound the alarm and to say, you know, I was close enough to the center of power to observe these really toxic things that were happening and now I'm being forced out, um, do I have a responsibility to sound the alarm for the rest of the people um, so that they are warned that this is an abusive situation? Um, so let's let's start there. That is a really great question. I've been dealing with this one with, uh, with some people of late too. Um, I would say that um, uh, there has to be a careful discernment of what Let's just call, say, what sin is involved here? Um, if it is genuinely a discerned as abuse of some level, let's call it spiritual abuse, power abuse, authority abuse, and you're not alone in this. All right. Now, some people think that if I disagree, that if David disagree, David Fitch disagrees with me, he's exercising spiritual abuse. Okay. Uh, that's not mm -hmm. the case. Disagreements mm -hmm. are not abuse. But uh, let's just say that you think that the situation was abusive. You have talked to a couple people and um, some people disagree with you, but others do. Let's just say now you think that, that it, it was abuse. The question I think that has to be asked is, is this going to continue? Is there evidence that other people have experienced this? If you are one of a kind uh, I don't think it's nearly as important as if that this is, let's just say, a character weakness in the person who has power. Uh, the other thing that's so important to me is how big is the power differential? Laura, this is a huge issue. If I have the power to silence everything you have to say, you know, as we say in walleye fishing, the jig is up. There's not much I can do about it. Um, yeah. You're hooked. Um, so the other thing is, um, I, I would say that the person who feels abused and who wants to report it needs to find, number one, a safe place. Number two, a safe person to whom they can talk about this. Make it clear to that person and ask that it be followed up. And then let's say 
over time followed up with some kind of process. Um, it is unfortunately the case, I hate to say this, it is unfortunately the case that uh, the chances of a narcissistic, powerful person changing their mind because you think it was abusive, spiritual abuse, is not all that good. The chances aren't that good. And it's very sad to say that because the church ought to be a place where these sort of things can be changed and shifted. So then I would say there's prayer, there's um, opportunities to uh, speak with the appropriate people. I've often, I was talking with someone the other day, and I said, is there anyone that this person listens to? You know what their answer was? No. Yeah. Well, they said, yes, they listen to people who agree with them. Mm-hmm. Well, what are you going to do about it? I mean, you can you can bark and complain. I don't think Twitter's the place to go for this. Uh, it's too, you know, contextless. Um, social media is not the best place for this unless it's a last resort. Um, I think that we should seek safe places to find people and seek advice um, and maybe warn a couple people who are friends in the church. I've found that most people have friends who are aware of this and who can help spread the word and then uh, hope that at some point it brings it, brings it out. I'm, I'm dealing right now with, with some people in a setting, in an institution where uh, there's a big number, a large number of people who, who all have the same story of abuse, power abuse, you know, authority abuse, um, spiritual coercion, manipulation, and uh, they're having a really hard time getting through because the administration, uh, you know, the the pastor is protecting them, protecting the persons who are abusing. So at that point, I think you try to find friends and try to do what you want. But here's one thing I do. I do believe um, you should follow the process, the protocols of the church as much as possible. Speak up and speak out. Speak your mind and deal with the implications of what it might mean for your income and for your health. Diane Langberg, and I've repeated this several times, says you have to be in a pretty healthy situation to be able to confront a narcissistic leader. And and I really believe that. I think a lot of people are scared to death. And if you're really scared, then I, I don't think you should go in. You should find someone who can help you. Yeah. Well, then a a related question to this is about uh, the existing accountability structure. So an elder board, a leadership team, an executive council. um, If you have tried to approach whatever the existing accountability structure is in place and you're not getting anywhere, you're not getting heard, um, you know, then then the question is, if you've tried to follow the means that are supposed to be in place to correct this behavior. And it's fallen on deaf ears, maybe because the elder board has been hand selected by the senior leader or whatever. Um, Then is your responsibility again, to go to the wider congregation to sort of skip over the accountability structure because you've tried and you haven't gotten anywhere. Um, You know, is that a great idea or is it just to leave and to leave the problem in place 
um, as opposed to trying, you know, doing something that could potentially really cause disruption for a church. Uh, yeah, and it can hurt your it can hurt you personally, emotionally, and psychologically. Um, I I would say that you have these are very difficult decisions, and and again, you have to be healthy enough to do this. Um, I think going to the congregation is not the best of ideas. Uh, I don't think that's the best line. Here's the thing that I would say first: if there are accountability structures, and the person is genuinely spiritually abusive. Um, in other words, you've discerned it accurately. And even of some of the elders, uh, you realize that this is a powerful narcissistic character problem that no structure can contain. Mm. This is what we saw. We've seen Laura, my daughter, Laura Berenger and I have seen numerous times in churches is that they had accountability structures. They actually instituted the Billy Graham rule, but people who don't want to follow the rules don't follow the rules. And accountability structures can only work for people who are willing actually to be accountable, not pretend to be accountable, but actually be accountable. And some people are hiding in plain sight by announcing that they're very accountable when they're not one bit accountable. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're realizing that you're up against a powerful person who is in control of the structures and the boards. So you're probably not going to change that person. So again, you followed the structures, you followed the protocol and everything that they asked you to do. You did it right. Nothing is going to change. But you think that you have a responsibility to tell other people Tell the kinds of people with whom you are safe and hope and ask that they will keep an eye out for these kinds of abusive situations. I know this happens at times in successful ways. I also know that at times, more often, I believe, it doesn't work out that way. But you did mm -hmm. what was right and you did the best you could. I'm sorry to say that that's sometimes all that can be done. Right. Right. And I think um, sometimes you may tell people, I, I've seen situations where you've then shared with some people and they agree with you. You know, they have their own stories of how difficult it is about how they're seeing power used in inappropriate ways. They share their own stories, but at the end of the day, they're not going to leave the church because community is a really compelling yeah. force in people's yeah. lives. And I think, um, you know, then I think you you personally leave and you pray for those people. Um, you hope for the best. But I think sort of launching a one-person campaign to change a culture is probably not the wisest choice, just for your own individual health. Um, but but it's hard. It's hard to, no, Laura, to leave you're, a situation you're... like that. You're so right, is that, is that uh, many people endure being silenced and suppressed um, and actual spiritual oppression um, and abuse because they love the people in the church so much and it's their family and they're not going anywhere. Um, and that's, that's sad. Um, I think they just, in a sense, 
they're going to have to, uh, let's just say, put it this way, uh, suck it up and suffer for Christ because of a, an abusive an abusive leader and pray to God that the next leader that comes along will not fit neatly into that old structure and the old culture. Yeah. Yeah. The other question that we had from people, and I think this is um, sort of these refugees then who have left, you know, maybe they've left a staff position, they've left a church because they've experienced all of this and they feel sort of homeless in terms of church community um, because of the spiritual abuse. And then they really struggle to trust a new church setting. Mm. Um, I think we've we've heard stories like that where people have said that I, I don't know that I can trust this new leader. I think, you know, there are people who say like with Ravi Zacharias, like here's somebody who had powerful accountability structures in place, um, but who chose to exempt themselves from it. Um, you know, when you've seen a pattern of these, and I think there are a lot of people right now in our current circumstances who are saying, we've seen some really high profile cases of this in the last few years. Um, it's so disheartening. And I think there are people saying, how do I, how do I trust church um, going forward? You know, how do we encourage those people um, to trust the system of the church and to trust their leaders um, and what should they be looking for in new locations? You know, as they visit a church, oh, what boy. kinds of questions should they ask? <laughs> I mean, this is this is this is maybe the most painful question. It is. It is a sad reality when people have had enough abusive relationships in a church, spiritual abuse, that they can't trust another church. And I'd say, well, stream online. But I mean, I know I know women, uh, some men, but mostly women, who who just can't listen to a, pre, a a pastor preach because they don't trust any of them. They've they've it's been too much for them for too long. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so um, I'm I'm going to say um, the Lord knows your situation, and the Lord's looking out for you, and I'm praying that you will find friends whom you can trust and let this be your fellowship until you're healed and you can move on if you can. Okay. That's one thing. The second thing is um, to quote Bill Murray, baby steps. <laughs> Didn't he say that? My wife quotes it. Baby steps. <laughs> I think my wife quotes it. Um, uh, what about Bob? Is that the name of the movie? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm pretty, it's pretty good when I can remember a line from a movie. Um, and I really mean that, is go slowly. Don't. Uh, a lot of people just plunge into a church, totally convinced this is the greatest church in the world, and then they discover, oh, there are a bunch of nuts in this place. All right, go slowly. Meet a couple people. Walk slowly. Give yourself a year or two of getting to know people, find some people you can trust, build from that spot out. If it's just, you just know three people in the church, maybe the pastor's wife, maybe um, an assistant's wife, maybe an assistant, maybe the choir director, you know, somebody that you've gotten to know and you can meet with and they can help with your situation. 
and um, uh, let your trust become genuine and organic and uh, take healthy steps with good boundaries and protect yourself from being betrayed and abused again. And it is really a sad story that some people have done that very thing and then found the same thing happening. You know, I want to say that churches are not perfect. But churches should not be spiritually abusive of of the tender souls in our churches. That that should not be happening. And it's it's unbelievably sad. You know, I've said this. uh, Laura and I said this in our book, A Church Called Tobe. Every church deserves a Mr. Rogers. You know, that's what we need. We need people who are Tove that we can trust. Find some Tove people you can trust. And, you know, if you're hanging out with Tove people enough, it doesn't take long for you to detect someone who's toxic. <laughs> yeah. Tove, yeah. you know, if that's you hang good. out with Jesus all the time, you recognize the dragon of Babylon when you're around him. But if all you ever hang out is with Babylon and the Roman emperors, you'll think everybody's a dragon. And then you'll mm-hmm. think I gotta be a dragon. That's pretty good. That That's good. Be, That's good. Be tweeted. <laughs> well, thank you for your time on this. This has been really helpful. And I think it's just a good thing to remember that God is so good and Jesus is so good. We can trust God. It's just sometimes his people are are difficult, are challenging. And there are some examples that are honestly downright harmful. Um, yeah. But yeah. just because we've experienced that in some, some places and even in church does not mean that in any way reflects the character of God. We believe that the character of God is tove and good. Um, and we look for that. We should be looking for that in our leaders. We should be looking for characters that um, demonstrate the goodness of God. And, and we want to mirror that and encourage that and be a part of that, um, creating, I think you call it pockets of Tove, um, yeah. wherever we are. Um, and, and to be an example of God's character wherever he's placed us. So I appreciate that reminder. Thank you, Pastor <laughs> Well, to our listeners, we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thank you so much. 